not even in the middle of, we're toward the end now of a series that we've been in for the last five weeks or so called The Resurrection Effect. We've been looking through the last two chapters of the Gospel of John to see how Jesus interacts with his disciples after his resurrection. And we are now in John chapter 21. If you've got a Bible, open it up to John 21. That's the last, the last chapter in John, the last chapter in the New Testament. And we're going to see Jesus appear again to his disciples. John chapter 21, I'm starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet his disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but only about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and he hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew that it was the Lord. Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, which you say cuts to the heart. Your word, which reminds us of who we are and who you are. Your word, which reveals you to us, where we get to open and see who you are, what kind of God you are, where we get to be amazed at the bounty that you provide. Lord, we ask that you would soften our hearts this morning, that as we listen to your word, as we read your word, that we would be transformed by it, that it would sink in through hard ears and oftentimes blind eyes and hard hearts, Lord, and that it would sink in so that you might soften us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll tell you guys about a place, one of the most amazing places that Joy and I have spent some time. This was maybe five years ago. We went to a place with her sister and brother-in-law in northern kind of upstate New York, outside of Syracuse, New York. And it was the middle of winter, so it was very cold. But we went to this place, and my brother-in-law knew the owner. He was a client of his. And he said, you're going to love this place. Just trust me. It's cold, but it's real nice. 
The name of the place, which should give you a clue right there. If a place has a name, it's probably a pretty nice place. Like my house doesn't have a name. Um, the name of the place is Savannah Dew. And it's on like a 2,000 acre nature preserve with elk and deer running around everywhere. And as we pulled into the place, one of the first things we realized was there's like feet, multiple feet of snow everywhere except for the roads because all the roads were heated. So we just drove right into these roads, no snow to shovel, nothing to do. And we pulled into this area where we saw these two houses, um, lodges that were probably, I don't know, 10, 15,000 square feet each, connected by an underground garage that parked about 50 cars. And the garage, I mean, it was a nice garage. Like, there was taxidermy in the garage. And when I say tax, I don't mean like a couple of deer heads on the wall. I mean like a, a pack of wolves attacking an elk. Okay, that like a scene. Uh, so, we pulled in here. We were greeted by the staff who was there simply to serve us. We were the only people outside of the staff staying there for the time that we were there. There was a five-star chef among this roving staff of five simply to serve us. So he would come to us, you know, about 11 o'clock and say, um, what would you like for lunch today? Is sea bass okay? You know, and we would say, well, yes, yes, it is okay. Uh, because it's a nature preserve, like you could hunt anything. They came and said, do you want to go hunting? Do you want to go out and shoot? And um, being, being the men that, that we were, my brother-in-law and I said, no, no, we'll actually just get a beer from the tap that's in the kitchen, and then we'll go sit in the 1,000-square-foot hot tub instead. Um, but the lady said, yeah, we'd actually like to go shoot skeet, but we didn't bring guns, we didn't bring clothing appropriate for this. And they said, oh, that's okay. And they took him into this room that was like a mini Cabela's, and they were like, what size do you wear? You know, here you go. And here's some boots, and here's the gun room. You can pick out whatever you want. And then these two guys went with them, took him out, and shot skeet, and just... They did whatever they wanted all day. It was the most ridiculous place I've ever been in my life. The man who owns it is a billionaire. He basically developed like the first malls in the United States. And he has this place that's just for his family and friends. Get this. We paid this much money for it. There is no payment mechanism. It's simply something that he does for people he likes. (laughs) Thankfully, he likes my brother-in-law, so we got to stay there. Story number two that's similar but different. We were invited to a friend's house when we lived in Baton Rouge. Uh, This friend and her husband, they have children. They live in a very modest house. He, at the time, was managing a pawn shop. She was a counselor working mostly with non-paying clients. They were not by any means wealthy, and they certainly weren't billionaires. But they brought us into their home with another couple. As we walked in, you could smell the food that was cooking. On, uh, on the oven there, on the stove, this beautiful stew that was filling the entire house with this amazing aroma. Everything really was beautiful. There were cut flowers on the table. The table was set beautifully. The place just felt welcoming and warm and inviting. The kids had things to do. We were welcomed in. And after a time of being able to just drink wine and talk and enjoy each other, we all gathered around this great table and we sat for probably an hour and just ate and enjoyed one another. It was beautiful and gracious and exuberant. 
It was also free, meaning there was, there was no uh, desire for response. There was no feeling like we had earned it. There was no feeling like we had to pay it back. It was simply gracious and generous hosting. Here's a third story. Maybe some of you have seen the movie Babette's Feast. It's a really wonderful French film, if you like French films. Uh, it's a fabulous movie about this woman who actually is, she's, she's French and she has to flee. She's a refugee from France. She flees and lands on this Danish island where these two young, um, uh, young women who had been uh, single for their whole lives, who had t- taken care of their older father, who had since died, they take her in. Well, they unknowingly take in this woman who is a famous chef in France. She had had to flee, but she was the most famous chef in France. Nobody knows it there. Well, she ends up actually winning the lottery in Denmark. And she doesn't tell anybody about it, but she starts buying food. And she decides that she is going to spend her lottery earnings by throwing an incredible feast for these women and for their friends. And she begins to bring in all of these people who are connected to them and serve them this beautiful meal, extravagant meal that they've never had before. And as she does so, she actually, she brings them all together. She starts to repair the brokenness in their families. She starts to repair the brokenness in their relationships. She starts to actually give them hope in their lives through this meal that she provides out of her own bounty. She spends it all. At all of her cost, she pours herself completely out. Now, why do I tell you these three stories? Well, it's because they actually mirror the story that I just read. They actually are all three in some way like the story that we just heard from John 21. Let's recount that again. Jesus' disciples, led by Peter and John, the rest of them, they're back in Galilee. They were in Jerusalem before. They're back in Galilee in the north of Israel. And they're going about their regular everyday work. They're fishermen, so they decide, we've got to eat, let's go fish. And they go out onto the Sea of Galilee... The Sea of Tiberias is the Sea of Galilee. And they fish. And fishing is best, apparently, at night during this time. So they spend all night fishing, casting nets out, trying to get something, and they end up with nothing. They come up completely dry, all night fishing. You can imagine how frustrating that experience would be. How tired they are, how hungry they are. They're actually trying to catch their breakfast, their food. And as morning is dawning, as the sun is starting to come up, they look over on the shore and hear this voice kind of call out from the shore that says, you know, haven't you caught anything? And that's probably also a little bit of a frustrating question, right? If you're a fisherman, no, hadn't caught anything. Thanks for reminding us. And this voice then, who they can't recognize right now, says, why don't you try casting your net out on the other side of the boat? Throw the net out on the right side instead of the left. And for whatever reason, they decide to listen to this guy. They don't know who he is, but they decide, well, you know, it can't hurt. Let's throw the net out over on the right side of the boat. And as soon as they do, their net is filled with fish. 153 large fish. So much so, the Bible says, that they have a hard time pulling it in. They can't even pull the net in. There's so many fish in there. 
And John, or as he calls himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is the first one to get clued in to say, I've seen this before. I've seen somebody feed 5,000 people with just a couple of fish. I've seen somebody do miraculous things. This must be Jesus. And he says, look, it's the Lord. And he shows everybody, look, it's Jesus. He's there on shore. And then Peter, don't you love Peter? He goes just kind of crazy, I guess, haywire. And instead of taking off his clothes to jump in the water, he puts on his clothes and jumps in the water and swims to shore. Because he's so excited Jesus is here. The rest of them follow, and as they land on shore, Jesus has actually already got a fire going. He's got a fire, even they were saying it's it's coal, so it's been going for a little while, and he's cooking a couple of fish already on the coals, and he's got some bread there that he's creating for them, and he says, come in and come have breakfast for me, with me. Come have breakfast with me. Bring in your fish, we'll cook some of those, and we will gather together, and we will eat. And then Jesus begins to serve them. He gives them the fish, he gives them the food, he gathers them around, and they eat together. This is a story of a gracious and generous host. This is a story of the amazing hospitality that our Lord has. Jesus, who provided their meal for them, provided the fish, who invited them to come in, who cooked the meal for them, and then served them. Do you see that? Jesus has been doing everything in this passage. Jesus is the host who who prepares everything and then serves them and invites them to come in and enjoy that meal with him. What do we learn from this? We're going to talk about three things actually that we learn about who Jesus is from this passage. And then we'll move on to three kind of application points or recommendations for us. Alright? So here's three things that we learn about Jesus from this passage. Here's the first one, is that Jesus' hospitality is always abundant. 153 fish, that was a lot of fish for the little net and the small boat that they would have had. And John goes on to say it's 153, not small fish, but large fish. So many that they can't pull it in. Jesus is providing for them in great abundance. We talked just a few weeks ago about the concept that we oftentimes live our lives by, this concept of scarcity. This idea that, you know what, I just don't have enough of the thing that I need in my life, and so I'm always trying to get it. I don't have enough of a feeling of significance in my life, so I'm always trying to get it through what I do, through either my work performance, or through gaining more people to like me, or you're doing things that makes me feel like I'm more welcomed by others. I don't feel settled and secure in my life, so I'm always moving on to something that's next, whether that's a new car or a new house or a new girlfriend or just some sort of new life. Maybe it's a new city altogether. Something that makes me feel like I'm kind of feeding this level of scarcity in my life. But all of those things that we usually turn to, they're like salt water for us. Right? You drink a glass of salt water, and at first it feels like, man, this is quenching my thirst. But what happens when you finish the glass? You are thirstier than you were before. And so when we live out of scarcity, all the things that we go to to try and fill ourselves, kind of what we, to fill that level of scarcity, they're always things that actually leave us emptier and emptier the more that we fill ourselves with them. But what Jesus says is, I have provided an abundance. I have given you more than you need. I have given you extravagantly. When we go searching for significance in life, the thing that we can drink that is not salt water 
is the good news that Jesus has actually filled us with his love, filled us with our significance found in him, given us identity and real purpose in life, and we are full. Full so much that it's pouring out, it's overflowing. Like you had a glass of water underneath the faucet and you just left it on, it's just pouring out and pouring out. That's the image that we get here of the hospitality, the provision of Jesus. So friends, are we looking for something to fill us? Or are we looking to the one who has displayed himself to be the most generous and hospitable host that there could be? Who has given us an abundance. That's the first thing we learn. Jesus provides an abundance. Here's the second thing that we learn from this passage. Is that Jesus' hospitality is not earned. It's given. Where does he come with this provision? When does he come with this provision and this hospitality for them? It's right on the heels of really some fruitlessness. An entire night spent of fishing and not catching anything. It's an entire night spent, really what you could just say is failure. Jesus doesn't come and say, wow, you have triumphed. You have done well, my son. Nicely done. Now, here is this beautiful spread that I've given you. It's not the way he works. He doesn't do it like that. Joy and I have been watching this uh, this show, this PBS show called Poldark. It's set in the, the late 18th century in England. And, you know, they're talking all the time about parties. All they're talking about, you know, this guy's a state who's next door to this guy's a state. And they're always throwing these parties. And there's this, this one in the show we watched the other night. There's an interaction where one guy has invited these other family to his parties over and over. And they keep saying no. And he finally comes, he says, why, why aren't you accepting my invitations? Why aren't you coming to my party? And the response is, because we know we can't reciprocate it. Their finances are tight. They know they can't throw that kind of party. So they don't want to come to that party knowing that it will be incumbent upon them to do the same in return. Sociologists will tell you there's something interesting about friendship. That when a friendship begins, it actually is based on a reciprocal nature of actions. Is that if I ask Tom to go to lunch for the first time, we might have a really good time. And, you know, to show me that he wants to engage in friendship, you know, he might reciprocate by saying, I'll take you to lunch the next time. But what actually happens as you grow closer and closer to somebody is that when you keep trying to reciprocate, it actually pushes the relationship further apart. It doesn't draw it closer. When you keep kind of playing this game of, well, if you've scratched my back, then I can scratch yours. If you've done something good for me, then I can do something good for you in return. It actually doesn't lend to a deepening of relationship. It lends to a lessening of relationship. And here's Jesus, the true friend, who is not basing his hospitality on what his disciples have done for him. They have failed. He is basing it on what he will do for them. He is pouring out his abundance, he is pouring out his hospitality to them in ways that are not based on what they've done. Here's the third thing we learn from this passage. Is that our Lord loves to draw close to his people. It's just part of what he does. If you flip through the pages of, of, of scripture, particularly in the gospels, you will actually see Jesus very oftentimes gathering with people around meals. You see, this, as, as John ends his gospel, he ends it with a meal. As Jesus' last act before he went to the cross, it was a meal with his disciples. His first, uh, his first miracle was at a wedding feast, where he turned water into wine, where he provided food and drink for people. 
He fed 5,000 people. He gave them their sustenance. He gave them what they needed and he gathered them together. Meals are intimate places. Places where we can come and actually draw together with each other. And like feeding yourself is actually, it's a natural thing. It's a real, just kind of regular, you know, human, earthy thing. But it's also a really intimate thing. It, it kind of is an intimate step to come towards somebody and say, like, I'm going to show you how I put food in my mouth. That's kind of weird. It's kind of gross, right? And so it's an intimate step towards somebody to say, let's eat together. And Jesus is always doing this. He's always drawing his disciples together to eat with them. When we come to the Lord's worship service, we come actually to gather around a meal. It's spread out for us here every week. It's, it's a meal that is a taste, just a little morsel, a taste of what Jesus is going to do for us at the end of all things. When he renews the earth and the heavens, he is going to actually throw us a party. He's going to gather us around his wedding feast, his banquet table, and we are going to feast. The Lord loves to draw near to us. As you come to the table even today, hear that invitation from Jesus. Come near. Let me feed you. Let me provide for you. So there's three things that we learn about who Jesus is in this passage. Let's talk about three things in conclusion that kind of send us out. How do we respond to that? What do we do? Well, here's one thing is that this is always the concept, by the way, in the gospel. That we are not who we are because of what we do. Sometimes we can get that really turned around, right? I am who I am because of the things that I've done. So if all the things that I've done today are really great things, then I'm feeling really good about myself. But if all the things I've done today are really bad things, then I'm feeling really terrible about myself. That's not the way it works. Our identity is actually given to us by Jesus. He calls us who we are. We are his, loved by him, proclaimed to be righteous and one with him. That's who we are. But that leads then to what we do. And so as those who have been shown the great hospitality of Jesus, how are we to respond? How are we to respond to that hospitality? Well, here's the first thing, is that we are called to actually open our lives and create space in our lives for others. Let me just be really clear about this. Hospitality does not need to be extravagant. Hospitality does not need to be overflowing. You don't have to be rich to be hospitable. You don't have to have lots of disposable income to be hospitable. But what you do have to do is you have to provide margin in your life for it to happen. You have to carve out time and margin, both time-wise, financially, emotional, emotional margin, in order to let other people come into your lives. If your lives are so pushed to the edges and so filled up, then there's never going to actually be any time to be able to say, why don't you come in and share this with us? If we are so full, then we will never actually have the time to be hospitable. This is what the Lord calls us to. He calls us, he calls the church to be hospitable. So here's that one thing. Here's the, that's the first kind of recommendation or application point that we can take for that. What, what does it look like for us to create the margin in our lives to, to be able to, to have the space for others? The second is this, and we're really going back then to what the motivation is. Are we spending the time that we need to spend dwelling on what Jesus has done for us? Dwelling on the great hospitality that he's shown to us. Dwelling on really the amazing provision that he's given us. Or are we always going to look for it in some other way? Are we looking for a way to kind of fill our needs 
in Jesus or in something else? Let me talk just real quickly like to the, to the high schoolers here today. Because this is something that, that adults deal with all the time, but I think is especially maybe sometimes more pointed in high school. Is that we feel like there is this kind of hierarchy of power, right, amongst society. And if I am one with lower societal power, then I have that power influenced on me from above, which means... In order to make myself feel good and gain that power back, I've got to exert my power on somebody that I think is below me in some sort of social standing. Right? So it's pouring, it's being taken out of me by someone above me, so I've got to take it out of someone below me. That's the way that the world typically works. But Jesus says that's not the way that we're supposed to work. That's not the way that the kingdom of God works. The way that the kingdom of God works is we say, you know what? The Lord has poured so much into me. That it is overflowing. He has provided so much that it can overflow to me so that I don't have to exert that from someone else. I don't have to receive something from someone else because I've already gotten it. The Lord has already given it to me in abundance. Alright, how about this third thing? The third kind of piece is if we have depended upon the Lord for our provision... And if we have provided the space in our lives for others to be able to come in, then the third step is actually a pretty easy one, which is we simply invite others into our lives. We invite them in in ways where we can actually show the abundant provision of God to them, where we can be hospitable to them. You heard actually Molly talk about how she experienced the hospitality of Jesus in our church. That's the first place we can start. Look around at your family and say, what would it look like? What would it look like for us as a church to be functioning like I want my family to function? Around a dinner table, sharing life together, meeting each other's needs, knowing each other deeply. And how can we then welcome one another in and share that life together? That's one step. The second step really is this, is to also invite your unchurched friends into this same kind of hospitality. Some of you know the story of a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. Some of you probably went and listened to her speak. She spoke here about a year ago in New Braunfels. She's a woman who was a tenured professor at Syracuse University and was, was, was vehemently against Christianity. In fact, had written a column in a local paper and was doing so regularly about the ills of religion on our society, all of the damaging things that religion had done to our society. And a local pastor uh, wrote her back, and instead, actually, of writing her back with a rebuttal, instead of writing her back and said, let's, let's go ahead and enter into this argument like we so often do, online, some sort of argument that starts back and forth. Instead, he sent her an invitation. And he said, why don't you just come to our house? Let's have dinner. And they began to share meals together. And he brought her in and with his family, and she just became kind of part of the mealtime conversation. And they would pray, and they would talk, and they would start to discuss. And it was through these little steps... These little steps of amazing hospitality that the Lord began to work in her heart. The Lord began to work in her heart and radically converted her. her the first book that she wrote is called the, the Secret, oh shoot, what is this? Secret Life of a, of a, what is it called? Unlikely Convert. Thank you very much. You know what the next and latest book she's written is about? Hospitality. What it's like to actually open up your home to others. We open up our home not only to our family and the church, but to those who are outside of that family as well. And then the next kind of thing that we can do is actually we just start to invite our friends to our friends. 
This is kind of just, a, um, I had a friend who threw a lot of parties, and that's the one thing he told me. Hey, the, the key to throwing a good party is you just invite your friends to your friends. You invite this friend, um, you introduce, excuse me, you introduce this friend to this friend, and then people know each other. That's our job, really, as Christians in hospitality, is to invite in, invite in people around us and introduce them to each other. Do you know this is actually really biblical, too? In the Gospel of Luke, when Matthew is converted, when Jesus comes and he calls him, he's a tax collector, and the first thing that he does is he throws a party. The next thing we read about Matthew, he throws a party, he invites all of his tax collector buddies, and he invites Jesus. He's like, hmm, this is all I know how to do. I've met this guy, Jesus. I kind of want to introduce him to all of my friends, so let's just have a party together. That's really a pretty wonderful model for hospitality for us and what it looks like to actually welcome in others. Our Lord has been gracious, generous, abundant in his hospitality with us. We are called to show that same hospitality to one another and to those who are outside the church. Let's pray that the Lord would enable us to do that even now. Our Father, we thank you for just the amazing and abundant hospitality that you have given to us, that you have shown to us, that you have poured out on us in incredible ways. You have been generous. You have been gracious. Lord, will you let it overflow in us? Will you let it fill us so that we don't go looking for those things somewhere else? And will you fill us so full that we overflow to others? That we open our homes and open our lives, open ourselves to those around us. Make us a hospitable church today, Lord. I thank you for the many, many ways that you have already done so. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.